So Isaiah chapter 50 and 49, the Lord made that discussion which applied to the nation of Israel and to Jesus much more directly regarding Jesus of how he formed uh, them in the womb uh, and how restored Jacob and brought salvation. And then he, he, in the process of that discussion, talks about how, you know, how would it be possible for a mother to forget her nursing babe? And then he goes on to say, even if that were possible, it wouldn't be possible for me to forget Zion, you know, to forget Jerusalem or his people. So he's, you know, talking about his trustworthiness. Now, when you come to chapter 50, um, there's this interaction that goes on where the Lord is speaking through the prophet and it's uh, it's assuming a number of things, it's saying a number of things about the people and how they have these accusations, and God is speaking from the opposite side of those um, understood remarks. So Isaiah 50 verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce? Whom have I put away, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you for your iniquities you have sold yourselves and for your transgressions your mother has been put away so you know this statement uh, is assuming their accusation that Israel is saying of God he's divorced us he's forsaken us he's left us or you know he's sold us out to the creditors you know, there was this massive debt, and he's making us pay for that massive debt. You know, God is here, you know, in the very first words of the chapter saying, where's the certificate? You make these claims, but you don't have any evidence of it. You know, you, you're the ones that are making this presentation. It's actually doctrinally a very strong position the Lord is taking about those that belong to him. And how he's never going to allow them to be separated from himself. They are his. You know, we see the New Testament saying nothing will separate us from the love of God. This is exactly what God is saying right here. You've listened to the wrong people or you've imagined it yourself. And you've got this notion in your head that somehow I want to be done with you. I want to divorce you. I want to get rid of you. Nothing could be farther from the truth is what the Lord is saying. In verse 2, why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that I cannot redeem, or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there's no water, and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. So this section is actually broken a couple different ways by the commentators. Uh, sometimes they uh, take verse 3 and couple it with 4, and it seems to speak more of Jesus. So we'll take a look at that. But to begin with, uh, this statement of, you know, how is it that no one greeted me? The idea is staying with the family, the marriage that's being described, 
He's saying, you've got this accusation that there's a divorce that has taken place, uh, but let's look at what was really going on. If this is a marriage and I'm the man of the house, God is saying, how is it that no one you know, would greet me when I came home? How is it that no one respected me as husband or father or head of household? You know, you're, you're acting like I've somehow neglected you, God is saying, when in effect you as my family, as wives and children, have not rendered to me the affection that was appropriate. You know, you're the ones that have damaged the relationship. You know, I have no limitations, God is saying. You know, I, I have the ability to dry up whole seas if I want to. I have the ability, you know, as far as pouring out affection, he's saying I have done that without fail. It's It's been your failure in not responding to me properly. Now, the, the clothing, the heavens of blackness make sackcloth their covering. If we attach that to verse 4, the Lord has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season or at the proper time to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Um, a couple of things about how uh, this Hebrew language is written here. The heavens being blackened and like sackcloth of covering uh, seems to be a prophetic image of the crucifixion. You have that period of time where the skies went black. The one who was learned and had the fit message, the proper message, was Jesus. I mean, no one has ever had a greater message than Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ is their most remarkable message in all of you know, eternity. And so here, you know, he was doing God's will. This opening of the ear is different. It certainly has the idea of listening. God has opened my ear so that I will hear him and pay attention. That's in there. But it's more directly speaking of having the ear pierced. He's opened my, my ear, which was solid, has been opened by a piercing. And the idea that's being let here. Uh, some of us know of the uh, bond servant and the idea that's there, the piercing of the ear. That the you you know um, if you were in debt, you could sell yourself uh, to a master uh, for six years, and after the six years, if you loved that master and he had treated you well, you had the opportunity to sell yourself into permanent servitude to that man, rest of your life. That is a specific state of his existence referred to as being a bond servant. You're bound to that man. You're bound to that house uh, for the rest of your life. If he provides you with a wife, then you have a wife. If he gives you no wife, then you'll never have a wife. You are subject to uh, the guidance and direction of the master of that household. So the idea of bond servant is used repeatedly to depict our relationship with Christ, and in particular, a few individuals in the scripture. Paul calling himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ, James. We have others. Jesus, uh, we'll reference here in a moment, being referred to as a bondservant in the process. 
taken to the door of the house, the servant who had served and is now going to become a bond servant would have their ear lobe stretched over the doorpost of the house and all would be placed on their ear and they would take a hammer and nail their earlobe to the house. Pull the all out and place a golden ring in their ear to symbolize the link of a chain. They are a bond servant attached to that house. That golden earring attaches them to that master and that home. So uh, this idea that Jesus is you know, a bond servant, his ear has been opened. Uh, within the bond servant imagery is that idea, right? You could have, I don't know, nailed a man's hand to the door or his foot to the door you know if we're into weird piercing practices you could have done any number of things along the way his ear he hears the commands of his master his ear is attached to the house of his master the call the beckoning the wishes his ear has been opened and we say that right close his ear he's deaf to me things of that nature not so with the messiah obviously and any of us that would say we're servants of Jesus Christ. Our ear should be attached to our master, his household, and his message, what it is that he has to say to us. This comes from Exodus chapter 21, just for clarification. Verse 5 and 6, If the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges, they shall also bring him to the door or the door posts, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So the symbology there in the law uh, of Exodus chapter 21. In regard to Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Jesus humbled himself to the point of serving God with his whole life uh, without flinching, setting the example for us. And that's what Isaiah is calling us to. Open your ear to the master. Listen and obey him. 50 verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheek to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Now, um, you kind of really start to understand why the blackened sky, like sackcloth of ash, is coupled with this section of verses, because it really does get to the point where it's describing Jesus Christ's, you know, um, torture and execution. Here, clearly his back being struck, as we well know, uh, his cheeks and those that plucked out his beard. This is actually uh, one of the only references in the scripture that tells us Jesus' beard was plucked out. There are those that want to make a big deal about it because it's not mentioned in the New Testament, to which I just say, Isaiah knows more than us. You know, I mean, why do we have to quibble over that? So here you have that reference. Um, I was just talking to the guys in study last night. Having a beard as I do, ripping your beard out 
is incredibly painful. And you think, well, how many times have you done that? More than I care to count. You know, there are certain motorcycle helmets I will never wear again. You know, just in pulling that strap out when you're done, when it rips out a cluster of your hair, you know, when you've done it the second or third time, you're like, I'm never wearing that. You know, it just, it hurts. There are certain ski jackets I will never wear again. That zipper comes right up in there like that. And then, you know, you're all done and you go to take it off and it's all jammed up and you have no choice. You're going to, you're going to rip your hair out. You know, you can yank the zipper open and you're going to rip your hair or you can just rip it out or whatever you want to do. But wearing this jacket means ripping your hair out. So the beard, I can't imagine not only having that painful embarrassment. Luke tells us they put a blindfold over his head and struck him in the face and head saying prophesy and tell us who's hitting you. Uh, Jesus was horribly brutalized uh, for our sake. Uh, When we're reading Isaiah telling us he was marred beyond the ability to identify him as a man. You look at what John is telling us when Pilate brings Jesus out. He's been punched in the face with a bag over his head. He's had his beard ripped out. They've made this crown of thorns, which... Those thistles in Israel are an inch and a half to three inches long. They make this crown and they smack him over the head to drive that into his head. Uh, The uh, reed that is described is uh, not as hard as uh, maybe our Japanese bamboo, but it's not as flimsy as like a cat of nine tails. It's somewhere in between. They drove that crown of thorn into his head with a reed. Uh, They scourged him, ripped his flesh apart with a cat of nine tails, put a purple robe on him and walked this beardless, brutalized, swollen, torn man out to the crowd. And what Pilate actually says in the Greek language is, don't be mistaken, this is actually the guy you gave me. Because Jesus is so brutalized that they could be saying, how do we know that that's Jesus? He's so destroyed that Pilate has to give that assurance to the crowd. His beard's plucked out. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Right? He had all kinds of opportunity to shield himself. He can see the punch coming while he's got the bag on his head. He's emptied himself of his glory and he's not behaving as God. He's allowing himself to be brutalized for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And we hear that about Jesus otherwise, don't we? We hear that once it comes to the point in his ministry that he knows the crucifixion is directly in front of him and there's nothing that he can do to avoid it it says that he set his face like flint towards jerusalem and he was determined that he was going to go and he was going to experience uh, the crucifixion for all of our benefits so um here uh, he sets his face like flint that determination 
and I know that I will not be ashamed. Here he is near who justifies me, who will contend with me. Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. You know, the idea of, you know, yeah, you're going to experience lots of people along the way who for all kinds of various reasons are opposed to you and particularly your faith. And here the Lord is giving us the assurance of they, they are going to disappear before you know it. They're going to be so temporary, so gone, so instantly over that you're not have, going to have to be concerned about that. We, we look at things from such an earthly perspective. We, we get caught up in the moment and think like this situation is the worst thing that's ever happened and it's probably never going to end. And Christ is giving us the assurance of no, you know, all of the circumstances and people that are against you, I'm in control and I'm going to take care of them. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, we should all know. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It does not matter what our circumstance is, right? We'll all be tested in these areas now that we're you know, reading these things with such boldness, but it doesn't change the truth. God is in control, and he is going to see us through our circumstances. 50 verse 10, who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon him, upon his God. Look, all you who kindle a fire, who and circle yourself with sparks. Walk in the light of your fire and the sparks of, excuse me, you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Um, seems odd the way that this is sort of described, but the idea, yeah, you who kindle a fire, is more like the profane fire of Nadab and Abihu. So um, here God is saying, you're in trouble and you need me and you need to call out to me and you need to stop, you know, like if you're in need of fire, if you're in need of things, you need to stop trying to do things, build things, create things like build a comforting fire for yourself to get through the circumstance. You need to stop doing that is what God is saying. The person who's going to kindle a fire uh, what you're going to have is torment in the end. Uh, you know this movement that is in the church of uh, you know performance uh, as people get up and make a big show. Uh, one of the areas people don't recognize it for how dangerous it is. One of the areas that's most obvious to see this is there's Denominations within Christianity where they have child preachers. I don't know if you've seen this. But 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, ranting and raving and shouting and stirring the crowd up and preaching. Preaching. Reading the word of God and declaring it to the congregation. And they are just, trust me, 
you get them in the right circumstance, and they are just as excited about kickball. They're 8, 9, 10, 12 years old, right? They're excitable children. Anybody who's helped the kids sing Father Abraham in Sunday school for the one millionth time knows they can get wound up for no reason. They're just kids. That's what the Lord is accusing them of here. As you're kindling this fire, you're getting things all stirred up like, praise God, this is the move of the Lord. And what it is, is nothing more than human excitement. It's not going to provide anything supernatural for your circumstance. In Leviticus chapter 10 at verse 1, it says, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, put fire in it, put incense on it, offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Kind of a detailed thing that went on in this moment. And in case you're wondering, like, well, how dramatic is that? I mean, big deal. These men were both struck dead by God. The issue was <clears throat> God is going to cause his Shekinah glory to come down from heaven and ignite the fire on the altar where every single sacrifice is going to be made. And the people of Israel are required, particularly the priests, to keep that fire going. But the origin of the fire is heaven itself. When Nadab and Abihu see the Shekinah fall, they turn to their own fireplace and scoop coals out of their campfire into their incense burners and then put the incense on it and rush into the temple to worship God. God strikes them dead. We learn later that God says no profane fire, whatever fires in those incense burner, as I told you before, needs to come from off from that altar, but secondly, anyone who's working in my service uh, should not be drunk while they do so. Implying Nadab and Abihu were perhaps a little tipsy when they scooped up their fire off their fire pit and put the incense in. I mean, perhaps not, but why else mention it in regard to their death? The strange fire, the church is following after whatever wild thing is next. You know, just such a heartbreaking thing to watch people have their faith destroyed. I'm not just talking about the emptiness. I'm talking about people who go into those circumstances desperately in need of God and have to go through lengthy periods of time before they come to the conclusion that God is not working in this. This is not the power of the Holy Spirit. This is some human endeavor that I'm experiencing. It's an unfortunate thing that the Lord wants us to avoid. So he puts that challenge out there that you need to stop kindling your own fires and start coming to me. So now we're in chapter 51, beginning at verse 1. God makes this statement that is a comfort for Zion. He says, listen to me, you who follow after righteousness. And it is as specifically that as it implies. He's talking to the people who truly are his followers. You who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. 
Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. And uh, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. It's, you know, I, I'm almost of, I'm going to go through the whole chapter, but I'm almost of the uh, sort of impression to just dwell on these verses for a few minutes and then just end the study. Because what's being said here is really important uh, when you look at it in light of what they're going through and what this message is to them. So they are a people who have rebelled against the Lord. And now they're in the process of being conquered. And they're about to go away into captivity for 70 years. It's going to be hard. It's going to be brutal. There's going to be terrifying things that happen along the way. But God knows that his purposed intention is to allow them to experience these horrible things so that they'll never again as a nation turn to idolatry. They go away to Babylon and just get crushed and come to the firm realization as an entire nation, as an entire people, that happened to us because of idolatry. So from that point forward, every time they come to grips with the fact that idolatry is creeping back in, they put an end to it as a nation. They never fall back into it the way that they were previously. So when God puts this call out to the righteous, to those who seek the Lord, he's literally sort of filtering amongst the people of Israel, saying, if you're out there and you're truly seeking me and you're truly walking in righteousness, then in the midst of these terrible things that are going on, when you feel so incredibly alone, remember that I started with Abraham and Sarah. We didn't have to have a big nation. We didn't have to have a big political king, army, people at all. It was Abraham and Sarah and God. And that's how we accomplished everything. They felt alone, they felt very vulnerable, they felt very weak, and I brought them to the place of power and prosperity. And that's what God is saying to this nation as, as they're fading into slavery, as they're fading into punishment. God is saying, if you're truly the righteous amongst the nation, know, know that the example you need to look to is Abraham and Sarah. Verse 3, for the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Interesting the way the Lord you know, puts this idea of the voice of melody. They had been known as a people of music and song. And yeah, when the first wave of slavery came, uh, the Assyrians were asking them, oh, you guys, wonderful music. Could you play a song for us? <laughs> and the Hebrew people were literally just hanging their harps up in the trees saying, I'm never going to play music again. My nation is destroyed. My people are slaves. Our children have been killed. Everything is in ruins. Music is of no interest to me. 
is what they were saying. God is now saying, no, even as you're fading away into the slavery, know that there's a coming day where joy, gladness, thanksgiving, and melody are going to be part of your existence. You're going to be singing again. There's a day coming where you're going to sing again. There's going to be a joy in your heart. I wonder who they're going to be in melody with. One another. Are they all going to be singing together? Enough people will be filled with joy in singing that they'll be able to harmonize with other people, or is it some reference to their being in harmony with the Lord? They're not in harmony with the Lord currently. That's why they're going away into slavery. But the harmony, the melody is going to come. I love the way the Lord assures us even as we're walking into very painful experiences that he's going to see us through the other side. That there's a beautiful thing waiting for us. Verse 4, listen to me, my people. Give ear to me, O my nation. For law, excuse me, will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait upon me, my arms they will trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke, the earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in it in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. Judgment's coming. It's going to be fair. It's going to be appropriate. It's going to be just in the process. The earth is growing old. The heavens are going to vanish away, right? There's all kinds of references to this. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm... I think of myself as a conservationist. I guess someone else would have to do that assessment of me, but I very much, you know, try to protect and preserve and honor what is around us. But at the same time, I also know everything that's around us is doomed. You know, there's no saving planet Earth. Okay? We absolutely should be, especially Christians as children of God, we should be the best caretakers of Earth. We should set an example, but there's no saving earth. That's not my hard, calloused opinion of it. God himself has said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. You read the end of the book of Revelation, I looked and behold, there was a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven. The old earth had vanished away. And, I, and there were no more seas. You know, there's a whole new state of existence that God is bringing about in his new creation. Or maybe he's reviving an old one. The earth here was different uh, when he first created it than it is now. So, you know, this idea that God is going to bring judgment, he's simultaneously lending uh, comfort and reassurance to his people. You need to have that balance, right? We can't just take a calloused approach of, you know, God is going to destroy the earth, so who cares about it? No. Well, we need to care about the earth and the people of this planet and do everything we can to share the love of God with them, that they would experience the deliverance from the sure-fired wrath and judgment that is to come. Uh, turn with me. Uh, to Second Peter. So you're going to have to go hard right to the New Testament there and get to Second Peter chapter 3. There's a set of verses we should look at again, beginning at verse 
7. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. It says, Peter speaking, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. This earth is gone. It's already destined for the day of destruction. You know, if you read there in Second Peter, he goes on to say, in light of that, you should live circumspectly, soberly, really considering, uh, you know, the life and the world around you and the judgment that is to come. What is being said about the judgment in all of these cases also holds the assurance of God's salvation and promise. Every single time you see God referencing the judgment that is to come, coupled with it is his salvation. He, he wants people to come to repentance. He's patient in this process to make sure as many as can will have the opportunity to be saved. Back in Isaiah chapter 51, looking at verse 7, it says, Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. You know, that constant reassurance throughout the scripture to tell us that we don't need to be afraid of the world. Don't need to be afraid of the one that can destroy the body. You know, instead, be concerned about the one that can you know, destroy the body and cast both the body and the soul into hell. That's God alone. We have no cause to be afraid of men, of uh, people of this earth. I, I know people that sit around and worry about the, oh, the coming days of persecution and what are we going to do. Well, here's the thing. I'm not making light of that at all. Um, I would try to scare you as much as I could right now and tell you the coming days of persecution are ahead of us. There is a great hatred for Christianity growing in the world all around us. So persecution is coming. I'm not taking that approach at all. I'm saying whatever we're claiming right now, time is going to tell how we're really going to behave. You're going to get into the difficulties or our children are going to get into the difficulties. And then everyone's going to have to make their own decision about their commitment to the Lord. I think personally the way to help mold and shape that is through careful study of God's word now so that it gives that reality to the heart so that it allows you to make decisions. You know, I years ago, I had a big conflict with an employer who 
one of the fire did end up firing me over my faith. And uh, in the moment, he offered me a partial escape because uh, he fired me on the spot for being a Christian. And if all of this sounds like impossible, hokey descriptions, still got all the paperwork from the state of Maine supporting this employer and firing me in this way. So, um, you know, the issue was he was realizing as he had just fired me that he had three very big projects in the shop at that time. And now suddenly I'm not going to be there. Not that I was any spectacular worker, but to lose one of your experienced men in the middle of three projects was, he realized the foolishness in the moment. So then what he wanted to do was um, uh, fire me two weeks in advance. So if I could just work the next two weeks, then he wanted me to get done. And I just was smug at that point and said, are you literally trying to unfire me and simultaneously refire me two weeks in advance? And he thought it all over for a minute and then said, yes. <laughs> and I said, no. Go get my paycheck right now. If you're firing me for being a Christian, then Jesus Christ is going to take care of me. It's as simple as that. I may even freak out on the roller coaster ride that all of that turns out to be, but God is going to take care of me. And uh, he really tried to convince me to stay on, and I just refused. Because it wasn't a matter of I made a mistake. I shouldn't have fired you that way. It was just I've made a mistake. I now realize how much work I've got to do. Won't you please stay for two weeks and then leave? No, not going to happen. You know, if we know how we're going to behave in advance, if we've read God's word and we understand we don't have to be afraid and we can rely upon him, then when those trials and circumstances come, we're better equipped you know, for those moments. Verse 9, awake. Awake, put on, okay, sorry, my attention deficit disorder. Verse 9 again, I was making sure I hadn't skipped a verse. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days and the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded a serpent, you know, this, um, you know, history that is uh, being recalled, you know, a call for believers to wake up. God is never asleep. He doesn't need this call to him to be put forward. You know, it's, it's not trying to awaken him for his strength and how he's going to care for us. Uh, I've quoted to you before uh, the scripture telling us that the joy of the Lord will be our strength. And we sing the song and we talk about that as though God has a, an amount of joy and he can dispense joy to us. And as we experience joy, uh, then we get strong, right? The joy of the Lord will be my strength. That's the way it's taught. Okay? That's not how it's written at all in the scripture. It literally means God will be filled with joy 
when we conduct ourselves in strength. The joy of the Lord will be my strength. We're called to be strong. Paul tells us, be strong like men. Over and over, we're told, you have the strength of the Lord. We're encouraged to wake up, be strong, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. I've literally heard preachers teach this as though this is about God. God, you've fallen asleep. You need to wake up. You need to be our strength, like you were in the olden days. No, no, this is this is literally saying, no, no, no. God is consistent and always available. You and I need to wake up and put on the strength and be strong and be the arm of God. Behave in the ways that reflect who he is. You know, it's... Uh, Psalm 121, verse 4, that says, Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither sleep, uh, excuse me, neither slumber nor sleep. God's never asleep. God doesn't have to be woken up. God doesn't have to be stirred up to be like he was in the ancient days. We need to be stirred up. And think about that. You know, the modernization of every culture is always trying to shed off the old ways of the previous generation. Right? Any of us that have gotten a little older know that it's the wisdom of the older generation that we need in our current circumstances. We need to look to the ancient days and see, you know, how was it? Why was it that those people, you know, behaved so much better in a moral way? They were being led by biblical principles. The world was different. We need to look back to some of those things and follow the guidance that was given to us from God. 51 verse 10. Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? You know, some clear uh, references to Israel escaping out of Egypt through the Red Sea and also crossing over the Jordan River to enter into Canaan and conquer the land and possess it. So the redeemed crossed over. So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads, and they shall obtain joy and gladness, sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. So uh, both in the release from the captivity inside Babylon they return to the land, joy and singing, gladness, their sighing, sorrow, but also for us as we look forward to the opportunity where, you know, we're going to be in the presence of the Lord and have all of our burden lifted away. 51.12, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of a son of man who will be made like grass? And you forget the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he had prepared, when he has prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit and that his bread should not fail, but I am the Lord your God who divides the sea and whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name, and I have 
put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with a shadow of my hand that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. So same sort of theme in that you've got judgment and destruction, fury and the oppressor, which are all being unleashed on Israel. And yet God starts right out saying, I, you and I am he who comforts you. You're going to have these things that tear at your world, tear at your life, you know, attack and even destroy, as he says in verse 13, your very existence. Uh, but when we rely upon the Lord, like the one who parted the waves, divided the seas, has this omnipotent power at his disposal, then we can be planted and we can be protected, overshadowed by his hand. The way that this, you know, putting of his hand, you know, the shadow of his hand over them, it, it has a very strong reflection of what is stated in Exodus chapter 33, verse 22, where we read, So it shall be, while my glory passes by, God speaking to Moses, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. You're going to be under the shadow of my hand, the same as Moses was. That wasn't a fearful thing, right? That's not God raising his hand, ready to just flatten them, smash them, destroy them. That That's Moses experiencing the most personal intimacy with God, perhaps that any human beings ever experienced. You can't look at me, Moses. What I'll do is put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll place my hand over the rock. I'll pass by. I'll be fully away from you, and I'll withdraw my hand when you Look out from the cleft of the rock and then step out. The glory and the radiance that you experience is just the residual effect of me having passed through the atmosphere. It's not even me. Some people say, oh, you know, power, light, reflection. No, it was just the leftover effect of God having passed through that place that he absorbed, right? When he came down off the mountain. Just the residual effect of God having passed by had affected him so dramatically that he glowed. His face shone radiant light and that people were all afraid. So much so that he had to put a hood over his head that he could see out through so that the people would not gaze on at him and be dismayed because the radiant glory was fading. Moses did not want them to see the fading of the glory as he's just returning to the normalcy of his existence. They want, he wants them to remember the radiant glow that was the effect of God touching Moses with just remnant particles from his passing. What an amazing thing when God is giving the assurance of the overshadowing of his hand. Sometimes we don't automatically think of how powerful that could be. You know, I mean, if I place you under the protective covering of my hands, it's fairly limited. You know what I'm saying? Just doesn't have anywhere near the effect. God giving that assurance. You're my. What is it? What does it feel like for you right now, nation of Israel? We're getting throttled. 
we're, we're being besieged. We're getting destroyed. We know slavery's coming. You know, it's come for every nation that's opposed these people. You know, our brothers in the north of our country. You know, the ten northern tribes have already been taken captive. We've done our best along the way, you know, screwed up and reintroduced idolatry and purged it out and got rid of it. And Hezekiah was good for us, but we're a mess. We're a disaster. God is saying, note where you're at is in the shadow of my hand. As you are experiencing, uh, you know, the full bore uh, experience of, of punishment under God's hand, you're also under the protective guidance and provision of God's hand. There's a comfort in that, right? He disciplines those that are his own, amen? He corrects and guides us. So in verse 17, awake, awake, here it is again. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have uh, drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling. Now, um, I, you know, a lot of times I'll build an explanation because for me, it, the more I know about it, sometimes it helps me understand what's being said and apply it a little better. Dregs are uh, really tiny, perhaps even microscopic particles of the grape's flesh. So when they're making uh, wine and they've crushed out all the grape juice, that goes through a great filtration process, but in the end you end up with dregs in the wine. Now, um, perhaps you have a Keurig coffee maker that you put your own coffee in, and you've learned along the way, don't drink the very bottom of this cup because it's going to be filled with coffee dregs. Okay, you get the picture now? So uh, dregs, uh, the flesh of the grapes. So what they would do is uh, after had it had aged in the, the wine barrels or the, or the wine skins for a very specific period of time, they would very carefully take the barrels and unstop them and pour very gently, very slowly. They had a whole uh, racking bench where they would tip the barrels over and pour them into a new barrel and leave just that very bottom amount in it. All of the dregs and a little bit of wine even. Like don't bother trying to get that last little skim because you're going to filter dregs over. And what happens in this, the, the wines that have been done perfectly, that have no dregs in them, they have the potential to get very sweet. So as they age over time, they, they taste better and better. I don't drink wine, but so I'm told it, it gets sweeter and sweeter if you leave any of the dreg in it it actually decomposes in the wine so so now you've got spoiled grape flesh right you got spoiled fruit in your wine and it's going to continue to decompose the whole time it's in there you know in a very short period of time it's going to be like you know and this wine doesn't taste so good. And then the next bottle you open up, you're like, oh, this is even worse. And pretty quickly, you're going to get to the point where, like, we need to throw that whole batch away. Didn't get the dregs out of it. You've drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling. You finished it right off. You didn't even see the really bad part coming. You were looking right in the cup. 
You didn't see that thick sludge on the body. You just, okay, so you just roll it up and you drank even the dregs of my fury. Hey, I think, you know, I discussion last night with some guys about this uh, thing we say, trying to help drug addicts and people of the like, you know, they, I think they've reached rock bottom. Any of us that have lived that way? No. There's no such thing as rock bottom. It doesn't exist. I've reached rock bottom. I will get out the drilling rig and the dynamite and we'll go a whole lot deeper. There's no rock bottom. I Okay, maybe there's rock bottom. My suspicion is if there is, it's in the casket. On this planet, in this life, I don't see rock bottom. I can see in the eyes of people sometimes. Everybody else is going, oh, thank goodness, he's rock bottom. I go talk to him, and I go, he ain't even close. I've seen this countless times. He's just waiting for you guys to all leave the room so he can go back to his shenanigans. Rock bottom. Drunk the dregs. Gone all the way to the hilt of the thing. You know, there's, a, there's another reference. That, you know, full hilt. <laughs> As, you know, on the bottom of the sword, when you've plunged it in so deep, you go full hilt right to the bottom of the blade. Plunging through, you know, full attack, full death, full destruction, drank to the dregs, the cup of trembling, drained it out. There's no one to guide her among all the sons she has brought forth, nor is there any who takes her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have come to you. Who will be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction, famine and sword. By whom will I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets like an antelope in a net. They are full of fury of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. You know, you, you know their, their anger, their resentment, their bitterness, their violence. You know, the things we're seeing. Guys. You know, civil unrest and Antifa and all that garbage that's going on in our culture right now. That's th this right here. The sword, the violence, uh, the destruction, the desolation. The, the, these are the young. They're not visionaries. They're the ones who've drank the cup dry. They've gone to the very bottom of the experience and taking in all that the world offers, and they're mad and angry that it's empty, and all, and they de they're demanding war, right? We can't we can't you know create this civil unrest. We'll I don't know. We'll occupy Wall Street for what? The fact that you've consumed all that you can of the world, and it's left you wanting. How did he start the whole statement? Wake up! People are sound asleep. In all of this mess, they don't even recognize what's going on around them. You know, a long time ago, some of you were around uh, when I was on a kick where people would say, you get talking about certain things and people will say, what is this world coming to? And I had developed the habit, and I still have, it's kind of a cue phrase. People say that I react with no hesitation and say, an end. 
and it inspires a lot of conversation. People will, you know, the, the most common one I'll get is people will say, oh, don't say that. Which I'll say, you know, if it's true, why wouldn't I say it? And the conversations are rolling. And we move through the fact that, look, you know, all this frustration, everything you're experiencing, you look around the world, it's going on. The reason it's so difficult, the reason it's so tormented is because it's dying. This world is dying without Christ. It's what we're experiencing. It's a horrible thing to be asleep in the midst of the destruction. Romans chapter 13, two verses, 11 says, do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. It's time to wake up and take a whole bunch of things off and put a whole bunch of things on. Live differently. It's no time for relaxation, luxury. 51 verse 22, therefore, please hear this, you afflicted and drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the God, the Lord and your God, who pleads the cause of his people. See, I've taken out of your hand the cup of trembling. Think about that, you guys. Those that are mine, those that worship me, those who truly know me, you know, you're in this terrible place, but I'm taking the cup of trembling out of your hand. The dregs of the cup of my fury, you shall no longer drink it. But I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you, who have said to you, lie down, that we may walk over you. And you have laid your body like the ground and as the street for those who walk over you. The way that we are so mistreated in this world, when it brings us to the place where we're faltering and we're afflicted and drunk but not with wine. We're just reeling from the condition of this world. The Lord is saying, I'll take all of that away from you. You don't have to as a believer. We do not have to drink the dregs. We don't have to take the wrath. We don't have to consume these things. Jesus Christ did that for us. right? He in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he say? Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That was literally the cup of wrath that Jesus Christ was drinking. He consumed the crucifixion full force. And, and even to the point, right, that they come to him with wine, sour wine, mixed with gall. If you're not familiar with that, that's a very powerful pain reliever. If Jesus Christ had fully drunk of that, soon as he tasted it, he spit it out, refused to drink, and he went through the crucifixion completely sober. Had he drank of that wine, he would have died even more rapidly than he did because it would have sedated his system. He couldn't have fought back. He wouldn't have had the clarity of mind. He had seven things to say from the cross of crucifixion as they were killing him. 
Very important to our understanding of even our salvation and eternity, right? I tell you that today you'll be with me in paradise. Oh, that's the whole plan of salvation fixed right there. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Into your hands, oh, I commend my spirit. You know, it is finished. All things. Completion of salvation. He needed the clarity of mind to get through those statements. He took a drink of sour wine, so just grape juice that had been allowed to ferment. He drank of the sour wine so that he could say, it is finished. could declare the end of God's plan of salvation. We don't have to absorb the wrath. For all of these descriptions of the terror and the difficulty and what's coming to the world, we're exempt from it. If you're sitting there right now going, of course we are. There are many people in the churches around us who aren't aware of that. They are convinced that somehow there's a terrible thing waiting for them at the end. Or they're going to go through the tribulation. Or they're going to experience you know, the judgment and the wrath of God at the great white throne. Mercy. Mercy. Grace. Grace and mercy. And mercy and grace and grace and mercy is what we have received from God. His loving acceptance. You know, if there's any degree to which my sinfulness, your sinfulness has robbed us, that's all it's going to be, right? Is a lesser reward. None of us wants that. You can't just brush it off and continue to, you know, do things that would destroy it. But the understanding that I am saved by the work of Jesus Christ at the cross, not upon my credit, my capabilities. The dregs are gone. The fury, the cup of wrath no longer belongs to us. A gracious thing that the Lord has done. So we'll pick up with uh, chapter 52 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Father, I thank you again for your word. The fact that we have many copies of it and lots of different translations and able to read and study and know and have such a thorough understanding of who you are and what you have to say to us. Bless us, Lord, as we follow your word and obey you. Fill us with your strength. Help us to be your ministers, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.